electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Bank regulators in the hot seat today and in the crosshairs of lawmakers who are demanding answers. How could Silicon Valley and Signature fail so fast? Could it happen again? And should we extend FDIC insurance for all bank accounts, no matter what size? We'll bring you the latest and get reaction from one person who was a financial regulator in a last crisis. Plus, speaking of banks, Morgan Stanley hailing Block's cash app as the place where millennials and Gen Z do all their banking. The analyst behind that call joins us to make his case, and we'll ask him about the Hindenburg report on Block last week as well. And why the dollar losing its special reserve status would actually be a good thing. That's all ahead, Dom. But first, let's get these markets. The markets are in churn mode right now and mixed for the most part, but it hasn't been dramatic, Kelly. And here's the reason why. If you take a look at the reasons where we're seeing a little bit of this move, people are still trying to figure out right now what the bank story is going to be all about. Now, if you look at this, the S&P 500, 39.68, down about nine points. At the lows of the session, we were down about 17 points. At the highs of the session, just about up two. So tilting towards the lower end of that trading range. The Dow Industrials, the relative outperformance, if you want to call it that, just about flat on the session, up 18 points, 32,450. The Nasdaq Composite down 86 points, 11,682, down about three quarters of 1%. One thing that we're keeping a close eye on is Chinese big tech and Chinese internet stocks. The reason why... Alibaba news up 13 percent. It's going to restructure itself into six individual business units, each with its own ability to raise its own capital and maybe even explore a possible IPO down the line. All meant to what Alibaba says is to unlock shareholder value. That's up 13 percent. The rest of the Chinese big tech Internet complex may be getting a bit of a sympathy tailwind because of that. JD.com up 4 percent. Baidu PDD Holdings among some of the outperformers in that Nasdaq trade today. Even the Crane Shares Internet ETF, the China one. Ticker KWeb, KWEB is up about 4% right now. Keep an eye on Alibaba. That's the big driver for that trade. And then the stock of the day so far is Lyft. Transportation logistics, ride sharing, second place to Uber in terms of overall market share in the U.S. The story here is the loss of momentum. Now, we, David Rischer is going to take over as the CEO of this company. The CEO and president, Logan Green and, and, and John Zimmer, is going to step back from those roles. And its stock was up about 8% at the highs of the day early on. It is now down 3%, so a little bit of steam loss in that trade. An executive change, it was a positive catalyst earlier, Kelly. It is now kind of weighed a little bit. We'll see what happens towards the closing bell, but lift share is certainly a big focus. I'll send things back. A big swing, too, Dom Banks. All right, we begin with the banking regulators in the hot seat on Capitol Hill today, facing questions from lawmakers about the collapse of SVB and Signature Bank, and most importantly, whether it could still happen again. Steve Leesman all over that hearing for us and brings us some of the highlights, Steve. Yeah, Kelly, dramatic new details about just how fast and furious events were moving in the final hours of Silicon Valley Bank before it was shut down. Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr testified to the Senate Bank Committee that after $42 billion left the bank on the Thursday before it was closed, SBB told regulators they feared more than double that amount was headed out the door Friday morning. A total of $100 billion 
uh, was scheduled to go out the door that day. The bank did not have enough collateral to meet that, uh, and therefore they were not able to actually meet their obligations uh, to pay their depositors over the course of that day, and, and they were shut down. The detail highlights a hyper-contagion challenge facing regulators these days. The speed with which deposits can flee a bank as a result of technology and social media and then spread to other banks, a problem for which regulators at the moment have no answer. Barr also had harsh words about the bank's interest rate risk modeling, calling it, quote, not at all aligned with reality. Barr's testimony made clear that supervisors cited problems at SVB numerous times from 2021 through 2022 and that the Fed board itself was informed of the issue of interest rate risk at Silicon Valley Bank in February 2023. Not clear what anything, if anything, the board did about that. Another key issue, new rules adopted by the Federal Reserve in 2019 exempted Silicon Valley from stress testing for several years. But wait. You think stress testing would have solved the problem? No. The Fed last year stress tested for falling interest rates in a year that banks were stressed by surging interest rates. Kelly? Oh, exactly. Steve, stay with us. Let's turn to someone who's been a financial regulator. He's firmly against extending FDIC insurance to all deposits. And he's Mark Calabria, senior advisor at the Cato Institute, former director of the FHFA and former chief economist to Vice President Pence. He's also the author of a new book, Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. Welcome to all of you. What meltdown, by the way, Mark? I didn't know about the book. What mortgage meltdown was averted? Well, let's remember that in March 2020, we came very close to a financial crisis, particularly in the mortgage market with among mortgage REITs, with among money market mutual funds. So part of the book is to really walk you through that stress we went through in 2020. But the other part of it is how we kept, you know, foreclosures from getting out of control. You know, as a reminder, we lost uh, 22 million jobs in that spring of COVID. Uh, And anytime you lose that number of jobs, you really face the potential of mass foreclosures in the mortgage market. In so in a sense, it's the shoe that didn't drop. So I thought it was important to write the story of why it didn't drop and why we stopped it from dropping. And maybe that's a good segue to the the shoe that has dropped (laughs) at uh, SVB and uh, why you don't, or let's put it this way. You say you don't support the idea of backstopping old deposits, but that's functionally what we have in place right now, isn't it? It is. I mean, although even after today, I think there's some ambiguity of whether you're a small community bank in, you know, Oklahoma or Louisiana, and if you're under a billion in assets, are your uninsured depositors really backed? So I think there's a bit of ambiguity here. It certainly, you know, we know uh, Secretary Yellen has gone back and forth. So unfortunately, that answer is not 100 percent clear. You know, obviously, if you're probably at a SIFI, uh, one of the largest banks is an insured depositor, you're backed. But ultimately, this is a decision that needs to be made by Congress. You know, Congress set the 250. It's not up to the regulators to make this permanent. Uh, And again, we'll find out whether that's true or not going forward and whether Congress changes this. But I want to take a little different, you know, let me focus on why I'm against the expansion. One second before I get into that, because, Steve, what are you hearing on that front? So, again, the whole point of this is to figure out we have this kind of de facto Uh, if that's the right term, uh, coverage of deposits right now. And everybody says, oh, we can't keep it this way and we can't keep it this way. But what steps might Congress actually take as far as you can tell to change uh, that, keep it from being enshrined? Well, if I could look at the negative, uh, like a picture on this and answer the question, 
the Biden administration hasn't proposed it to Congress, so that might tell you where they think the votes are, or in this case, I believe, aren't. I don't think they have support for it yet. Otherwise, they'd put it in. It may be one of those situations, unfortunately, like if you remember the TARP vote, Kelly, when it went down the first time, the market fell 700 points, they right. went back and they put it back in. Um, I, I want to respond. I want Mark to make his argument about why he's against 250 and I want to respond to that because I have a slightly different point of view, even though, of course, <laughs> I have great respect for Mark. Uh, in a nutshell, if you could, Mark. I, and, I, and I appreciate how the, the respect is mutual. And so I want to take the other side of this and say, you know, the uninsured depositors forcing the closure of Silicon Valley Bank was a good thing because the regulators were at least six months, if not a year behind the curve. If the uninsured depositors had not forced this bank to close, who knows how long it would have taken? The hole could have gotten deeper and deeper. And again, you look at like the savings and loan crisis. You look at 2008. One of the primary problems is that bank regulators take too long to, to act. And so again, this to my view is not some sort of you know, mindless panic run. The bank was insolvent. And uninsured depositors forced the regulators to do something about it that they wouldn't have done with otherwise. Steve? So Mark is right about that, uh, and, and there's a legitimate question about Can I whether quote or not you on that, Steve? Uh, depositors. Sorry. Go ahead. Can I quote Steve. you on that? Mark was right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a legitimate question as to whether or not uh, depositors, uh, equity holders, and other people ought to have access to what the supervisors have access to. My point is against this moral hazard issue relative to the depositors, and I've made this point before, Kelly. I'll make it again. If the supervisors don't see it enough to shut down the bank, the equity holders don't see it enough to shut down the bank, the bondholders aren't pulling their money out or selling their bonds, how in God's name are the depositors supposed to see it? These are mostly folks trying to run their businesses and really want the financial system to operate in the background. The idea that they're enforcing any discipline on the banks, to me, is suspect at best. Right. And I should add, Mark, as you kind of respond to that, no one was ever looking at this metric until this crisis happened. You know, if people who do banks and bank, I mean, the, un, the percentage of uninsured deposits is now, uh, you know, obvious, but it certainly wasn't a short time ago. And Mark, I also just want to point out a couple of these weak banks, First Republic, PacWest. I mean, we're sure. seeing them trade down another five, six percent again today. I'm just curious if you could comment on that, because it does seem like it would be connected to the idea that, you know, maybe everything isn't going to stay covered. So, uh, you know, it is a great concern, and it's important to keep in mind that Silicon Valley Bank had at least a half a dozen problems, and even the First Republics only have a small number of those problems. So I didn't really walk away from the hearing this morning seeing what the evidence of contagion is. And again, to also emphasize, you don't need 100 percent of depositors. You know, we know prices are set at the margin. That's Econ 101. All you need is a small sliver. Five percent of depositors, modern institution can result in market discipline. So, again, I would disagree with an argument that you need everybody monitoring. But again, I think there's a small segment. And again, most of those banks, we publicly know the information on uninsured depositors, the, un, the unrecognized losses in securities. Again, we've all seen those names out there. We know the half a dozen or so that are problematic. And I really want to emphasize it's largely limited at this point to those half a dozen. So where, so to, where would you say, let's say someone came to you, Mark, and said, OK, I'm a customer at First Republic. What do I do? Well, I think, again, if you are somebody who's got over 250, you can put it in multiple banks. There are a number of services that allow you to including private insurance, but there's the services that will allow you to have to divide those banks. That's the interesting thing is the great thing about capitalism. You can pay someone else to monitor it for you. 
and there are services that do that. So to me, it does speak to the relative unsophistication. I agree with Steve. Nobody wants to monitor their bank. But again, you can buy services that do that for you. Do you think, I a, think with a yeah, one year, for instance, let's say they, you know, there's a blanket guarantee, but it's only for a year or they just raise the cap to 500K. What to you seems feasible? Uh, so let me start with what I'm concerned about, and then we'll talk about what, what's likely or feasible. Never in history has the cap been raised and gone back down. Every time it's gotten raised temporarily. Well, there's inflation, temporary. too, right? I mean, the, sure. the idea is, in principle, the 250K should be inflation adju adjusted. Well, well, let's take that point. The 250K is six times the inflation-adjusted value of deposit insurance when it was created in 1933. Hmm. So it's more than kept up with uh, inflation. In fact, it's, again, six times as high as what it would be simply if we adjusted it for inflation. And, of course, it's important to remember, the typical household has something like $10,000 in deposits. The richest 1% of household holds a quarter of all insured deposits. Right. So this isn't about MAPA. Again, it's about small businesses, and that's a great debate to have, but you can have those services. So let's get to what's feasible. Uh, I, I certainly agree. I mean, you know, the, the Biden administration has not come ask for it. You've seen members of Congress flip flop. The Freedom Caucus, you know, or whatever they're calling themselves today, have come out against it. So I think you'd have a very tough time, although there generally is a lot of bipartisan support. And the real wrinkle is going to come here. If it was a clean increase in the limit, then you could probably get it through Congress. But I don't know how you're really going to do that without the Elizabeth Warrens of the world piling a bunch of regulatory stuff that scares the community banks. And so that's a real concern going forward. So I would handicap it at maybe it's a 30 percent chance that Congress does a permanent increase to something like half a million. Wow. Hard to imagine they'd go far beyond that. And maybe, Steve, if you could just put a point in it, that helps explain why we're seeing renewed weakness across the regional banks. It's not huge, but it's enough. If, if Mark's point is he doesn't really see the political will to do something bigger here, then that kind of leaves us with the status quo. Yeah. And, and you've got to translate yeah, this. Until it's until Steve, it's until it's. Until it's there. Um, I, I just think if I have a pizza restaurant or a mega corporation, I should have safe daily access to dollar liquidity. And I, I don't know how to provide that in a way that doesn't create additional moral hazard and allows banks to do what they do, which is to take on the risk of maturity transformation. I think that, uh, Kelly, I led this my piece with this issue of the technology and the speed with which things can move. There was a, a, a testimony today that in, in, in one of the bank failures in 08, it took 10 days to move 16 billion. Mm. They moved 42 billion on Thursday and we're gonna move 100 billion on Friday. Things are moving faster than the regulators have figured out how to regulate it or supervise it, or the banks have figured out how to stop it. This is a, I agree with Mark, it's a bespoke issue with the uh, flighty depositor base and the idea that they were all sort of concentrated in, 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 one, in one industry. But we have to start to think about this new world of being able to move lots of money with, yeah. a, couple tick, with a couple of clicks on a phone. We got to go quick, quick last word, Mark. I just want to remind everybody, 800 billion in deposits left the system in the 12 months previous to Silicon Valley Bank. So as the interest rate spread and alternatives goes up, you know, I, it's not unreasonable to think another trillion will leave the system over the next 12 months just because there are better returns elsewhere. Wow. And we'll see uh, what more that reveals about the solvency of some of these institutions. For now, thank you both. Great stuff. Mark Calabria and Steve Leisman. Let's get to this five-year note auction after that kind of poor two-year uh, yesterday. Rick Santelli tracking it for us at the CME. Rick? A much better auction today, Kelly. 43 billion five years 
hit the auction block at 1 o'clock Eastern. My grade, a B plus. A B plus. Haven't given out one of those in a while. And that's actually an important thing to think about. The yield, 3.665. The when issued market was on the high yield at the time, which was 3.675. One basis point higher than where we auction the paper. Lower yield, higher price. From the government, higher price is a good thing. One of the main reasons the grade was up there a bit. And all the other metrics were solid against their uh, 10 auction average. And I think the reason that this auction is important, this is one of the first ones where I saw really good demand as we're all discussing the agita in the banking and financial systems, all a little nervous that the Fed is, you know, uh, nose uh, blind to all the aromas that are in the room. But to see investors step up here for this five-year makes me think maybe the high yield, the comeback to all this, maybe about run its course. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Markets have turned lower with the Dow now down 32 points at pretty much session lows. My next guest isn't buying the rally that we're trying to build over the last four days or so and warns that the Fed may have to cut rates sooner than later and says that's actually bad news for stocks. Let's bring in Andres Garcia Amaya. He's the CEO of Zoe Financial. Andres, people have been chasing tech stocks and Bitcoin and all the rest of it and this idea that, you know, maybe a rate cut is a is a good thing, you know, liquidity pivot. What, what would you say to that? If we look at the last couple times the, the Fed lower interest rates, stocks didn't do well uh, during that period. Why? Because usually the Fed's kind of catching up to uh, what's happening in the economy, either on the growth side or, or the inflation side. So if the Fed were to lower interest rates to try to help uh, financial stability, I don't think that's good for stocks. If the Fed were to lower interest rates because they beat inflation, maybe that would be a different story. But with inflation at 6%, I don't think that's going to be the case this year. Yeah, well said. You know, it's also in you're emphasizing that kind of we're so obsessed with the failure of SVB today, obviously. But to you, in some ways, that was a macro event. That was a markets event. And the scars, for instance, of what happened in the two year, that three day plunge, you think that's pretty telling, no? Absolutely. I think the bond market reacted a lot more stronger than stock uh, than stocks this time around, basically telling us the Fed's going to have to blink. Right. If they went from solely focused on price stability to now financial stability, the bond market uh, tends to think now that they're going to have to focus more on that financial stability. Stock market didn't react as harsh. Right. I think the, the stock market is trying to see if this event on the, on the regional banks becomes just kind of a, a history lesson rather than something much bigger. You know, you, you make the argument we've heard from other voices here uh, in the same vein. Paul McCulley is now very much in this camp. Why do you think that no Fed officials themselves? I mean, if you listen to them, you'd, you'd sort of think it was a very different economic reality. Why? I am so glad I'm not in those, those seats right now because everyone's crystal ball just got a little bit hazier, right? Once the financial stability concerns become larger, I mean, we learn how quickly the world could change in three weeks, right? So I think they have a really tough job of, of basically having that price stability goal not going away. Because, I mean, imagine if they say, okay, forget inflation, even if it stays at 6%, that's not good either, right? So I think they're now stuck in a, in a hard place with no easy decisions. I mean, they could get up there and say, hey, everybody, you know, inflation's already receded by a third. It's falling almost as quickly as it rose, and we expect it to keep turning over. Look at the home price data this morning. They could choose to start building that narrative, say people, we're not doing this in spite of inflation. We're doing it because inflation appears to be heading way back down. But they, I, I don't know why they, they just don't seem to want to talk about that. 
I think the issue is that if they do that and they're wrong, right? Let's say they start lowering interest rates and core CPI uh, stays elevated. Okay, what are, are they going to go back to hiking interest rates in a, an environment where a recession is a danger, right? So I think they're just stuck between uh, not really good uh, options left on the table when it comes to price stability. Yeah, it's just odd because you you know people in the markets go, we see we see the accident forming. Uh, we think the Fed probably knows it, but feels like, yeah, they can't really commute. You know, they'll err on the side of causing the accident. It's just odd. So what would you do with markets or investments or, or strategy at this point, let's say for the next six to 12 months? Yeah, and that's the key, right? Uh, important to caveat here. If you're investing for retirement 10 years out, I think you don't make any drastic changes, right, to, to your allocation. If you're looking at the six, 12-month horizon, I think that we're just going to expect a lot more uh, price instability on the markets, not just on, on inflation. And what that basically means is stocks basically stuck in purgatory. I don't know if we're going to break through October lows, but I don't see any environment right now, like the ingredients for a bull market to emerge. What then would you do? So T-bill and chill was the refrain until it kind of blew up the economy. So what would you do with, for instance, those still high yields on anything from six to one? Maybe you could call it two years. I mean, where, where do you think? We definitely have seen the importance of cash management becoming part of asset allocation. And what that basically means is a lot of people didn't realize that they were making, you know, one percent or half a percent on their cash. So that becomes a key part, right? Talk to your financial advisor. A lot of people find surprising that they can make four or 5% on their cash right now. So a lot of that's gonna happen, which by the way, is the danger with the regional banks, right? Mm -hmm. The deposits were so low, that's where the money started to come out is because there's better options out there in places like money markets. But you would endorse moving it to, to those higher yielding areas? I, let's put it this way. It depends on your current situation, but some people didn't even realize that that was an option, right? I know I, I, we encounter a lot of times people that are still sitting on checking or savings account yielding half a percent or one percent, right? So there's still a lot to be done there without having to shift everything away from stocks or bonds to generate better returns. All right, Andres, great to see you today. Appreciate the warning. Andres Garcia Amaya. Coming up, how are home prices holding up after all the turmoil in the banking industry? We'll get the latest read and see what it means for the spring selling season and for inflation. But first, what if Cash App built a bank? That's the question on Morgan Stanley's mind and the firm's bullish on block despite last week's short seller report. The analyst behind the call joins us to make his case. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. Dow's turned lower by 30 points, giving up a 100-point gain. The S&P's down a third of a percent. The Nasdaq down three-quarters of a percent. The 10-year yield, 355. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM 
a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Amid the bank turmoil and last week's bearish report from Hindenburg, payment stocks like PayPal, Block, and Affirm are down month to date. But one major crypto VC, placeholders Chris Berniski, just told us he thinks Block is a name to watch in this space. And my next guest also sees big opportunity for the very same reason that Hindenburg is short, namely the Cash App. Joining me in this edition of Tech Check is research analyst at Morgan Stanley, James Fawcett. James, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. So you really think, I mean, you're saying they lean into Cash App, they really build out a bank. Do they have a banking license right now? A bank charter, I guess I should say? Well, they have a, an ILC, which gives them the ability to operate in a lot of cases like a bank, but without necessarily all the same restrictions that, that a traditional bank might have. Why do you think this is such a big opportunity for Block right now? Well, if you look at the demographics of the U.S., one of the, the big opportunities is just the, the emerging youth group generally. Um, not only do you have the millennials, but you have Gen Zs just starting to enter into the age where they can have their own banking uh, accounts, et cetera. And one of the things that we've seen is that as banks generally have become more conservative and, and we can just see the the events of the last few weeks is evidence as to why that is. Mm -hmm. It makes it harder for them to really go after these younger consumers because they're not really profitable customers yet. But in the case of, of Cash App, they can Cash App can take advantage of its position, the P2P as a way to onboard customers very inexpensively, and then eventually mature with them as those consumers age and, and frankly become more profitable banking customers. So you say if the right product and strategic investments are made, we think Cash App plus Afterpay can operate like a traditional bank, reaching over the size of the course of 15 years, the size of Capital One today. I think there's people like having panic attacks just hearing about this because you've got cash. We, we all read the Hindenburg Report. Now you're talking about Afterpay. I mean, are these really the right assets to build a durable financial institution? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I think the, the basics that you, you start with is um, a way to acquire customers. Um, right now, Cash App is using the, the P2P. Uh, they've got some revenue streams. But I think in, the, in that report, um, there were a lot of things that were highlighted. But the thing that stood out to me is none of those were new. And in fact, most everybody that we talked to, whether they were long, short or indifferent, knew about all the issues that were raised in the report itself. Uh, certainly there are questions on durability of some of the revenue streams like the debit revenue stream or their instant deposit stream. How is Afterpay gonna perform in a credit cycle? But these are like very basic questions around any banking institution. So from our perspective, the ability and opportunity to take advantage of, of winning the, the younger consumers and then maturing with them is, is really what's driving the valuation and the expectation around cash up generally. Yeah, I mean, it, it also, to kind of put it differently, would, would be if they don't do this, they could have, they'll miss a big opportunity because those customers are probably going to end up maturing into somebody else's market. Um, I wonder, though, if this is also a customer base that would be incredibly uh, flighty, right? You, this is inherently mobile app technology. And as we were all just talking about whether it was $40 billion or $100 billion worth of cash that was out the door at SVB, would there be some concern with, you know, just keeping people on this app? You know, it's trendy. 
people might move on. There might be a new payment technology that might raise their cost uh, you know, of funds over time and make it less profitable than it is today. I'm just curious what you would think about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's always a question. I would point to a couple of things is that in our proprietary AlphaWise survey, Morgan Stanley AlphaWise survey, is what we find is that already about three-fourths of existing Cash App customers want Cash App to do more things, deliver more value, uh, new products, and, and more traditional banking services. Uh, is there a flight risk? Yeah, I guess so. But that's the, the trick with any business is how do you retain your customers? And, and I, there, I don't think that the, the formula to do so is, is magic. You have to do it, reasonable cost, good service, make sure that the, the customers are seeing value. And sure. if you're able to do that, the retention will be fine. Real quickly, what about Venmo? Where does that leave them? Wouldn't they arguably, could, could you make the same kind of case for building out more of a bank there? Yeah, so Venmo is interesting. Um, certainly, it, it, it has a lot of parallels. Uh, from our perspective, I think that Venmo, though, its real long-term opportunity is to turn into more of a, a, a checkout button a la PayPal. And, mm. and frankly, I think that's probably a better business being a, a digital wallet or, or a checkout button, if you will, in the future than being a bank. But, you know, certainly Venmo has uh, has a pole position to be able to take advantage of, of the opportunity that's presented to them. In the future, I actually don't see a lot of direct competition, even if there is today. Very interesting. James, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. James Fawcett with Morgan Stanley. Still ahead, the dollar has been the world's reserve currency for nearly 80 years. What would happen if it lost that status? Our guest says dethroning King Dollar would actually be a great thing. He joins us to make his case. And as we head to break, here's a look at the sector heat map as we see markets turning lower today. And we're pretty evenly split. Energy's outperforming again up one and a half percent. But technology down one percent. Communication services, that's your worst sector today. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're near session lows with the Dow down 60 points, and it's the outperformer. The S&P is down four-tenths of a percent to 39.61, and the Nasdaq is down about eight-tenths of a percent right now. And take a look at a firm. We were actually just talking about the buy now, pay later name. Uh, they're sliding to session lows down 9% now after Apple today unveiled a buy now, pay later feature for Apple Pay. Now, Apple says users can split purchases now into four payments spread over six weeks with zero interest and no fees. A firm is now down not just 9% today, but 80% in the past year. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News Update. Ty? Kelly, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News Update at this hour. Fighting has once again intensified near a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency tells the Associated Press that this kind of fighting increasing increases the risk of a war-related nuclear accident. He is in Ukraine visiting the facility and has said that the two sides are close to reaching an agreement to protect the plant. So that, at least, is good news. Protests and strikes continue today in France in response to President Emmanuel Macron's plan to raise the country's retirement age from 62 to 64. 
Today marks the 10th day of street protests. And the U.S. has reached a trade deal with Japan to bolster the supply of critical minerals needed for electric vehicles. The deal helps diversify supply chains and reduce automakers' reliance on China. Kelly, back to you. Thank you very much, Ty. See you soon. Coming up, regulators testifying on the Hill today over the collapse of SVB. Are we any closer to ensuring all deposits in the banking system, even in the short term, as some have proposed? Libby Cantrill of PIMCO weighs in next. Welcome back. Lawmakers questioning regulators, including FDIC Chair Martin Grunberg and Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr today about the collapse of Silicon Valley and signature banks. Republican Senator Cynthia Loomis questioned why the Fed didn't crack down on SVB's liquid assets as required by Dodd-Frank. Listen. I look at all this and I think that among all these statutes and regulations, the Fed had plenty of authority to prevent Silicon National, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, and the problems it encountered and, and were, was aware pretty early on that there were unique problems there and that it was a very, very unique financial institution because of its risk profile, but didn't do it. Well, my next guest says the Fed's powers are actually still pretty limited. Joining me now is Libby Cantrell, PIMCO's head of public policy. Libby, it's great to see you again. Uh, welcome. And what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, what we are talking about um, is the, um, the administration's ability to ensure uh, deposits to provide a broad-based guarantee, Kelly. Um, it is actually very much right what Senator Luma said. The, Fed, the Federal Reserve has a lot of discretion regarding the requirements that they need that they can impose on banks with assets over a hundred billion dollars um, there's been a lot of focus on senate bill 2155 that was the 2018 regulatory relief bill and very specifically that bill uh, still allowed for the fed to have uh, discretion again again over in terms of imposing uh, liquidity and capital requirements i think vice chair barr very much previewed that uh, very likely the fed will use that discretion going forward. So, yeah, just to be clear, my, my our comments have been really about the, the uninsured depositors, whether the administration has a unilateral ability to increase that, you know, that 250K level or to provide a blanketed guarantee. Our view is they don't. Mm. Um, but, but again, the Fed does have and did have uh, discretion over uh, banks with assets over $100 billion, which, of course, would have captured uh, SVB and Signature Bank. So your comments, Libby, echo what we heard from Mark Calabria earlier this hour. He said he also thinks there's basically a 30 percent chance that anything happens on the FDIC cap, which if nothing's going to happen, then that leaves us right back where we started from, doesn't it? Maybe that explains why the regional banks are trading the way they are today. Yeah, exactly. And I think, Kelly, this was very much on display in today's hearing. It was really about a postmortem about the, the lack of Federal Reserve supervision, about the potential gaps in regulation, about the sale of the of SVB and, and Signature Bank. It really wasn't about what Congress plans to do going forward. There were some members, some senators alluding to potential legislation, but there doesn't seem to be unanimity on Capitol Hill, at least as of now, uh, to move forward, whether it is the uh, increase in the in the deposit guarantee level or a broad base guarantee. We think the threshold for Congress to act is incredibly high, particularly given the split nature of Congress. But also, um, as you heard today, uh, there is a lot of kind of hand-wringing about Fed supervision and then also about just the management, uh, broadly speaking, of, of SVB as well. 
So if I'm uh, either a wealthy American household or a business with uh, funds over this level, I'm listening to this and going, all right, I better make sure that I have my money spread around at different bank accounts under that cap or at larger institutions that are, I guess, implicitly too big to fail and that sort of thing. Um, you know, this just, I guess, then raises the question of what happens if we get into a situation again are we still facing the issue of bank runs, or is this more now a question of solvency for a lot of the smaller and regional banks across the country? I mean, and honestly, that could take months or quarters or really years to fully play out. Yeah, and I think, you know, our banking analysts here at PIMCO would say that regional banks are not a monolith. Um, some banks have dealt with their sort of duration mismatch better than than others. And so to sort of characterize them with a broad brushstroke is, is probably a mistake. I think what you've seen with Secretary Yellen and Fed Chair Powell is that they're trying to assuage folks that, yes, their deposits are safe, that the administration does have some tools. And of course, what we did see with the FDIC and Treasury is that they do have tools for uh, those banks that are put into receivership. And, and we don't question those. It's just a, really a question of whether the administration can provide a broad-based uh, deposit insurance guarantee. And I think our view is, no, this is statutory. This is really falls within the limits of Congress. Now, Kelly, to your point, if there is a broader run, and, and I don't think anybody is necessarily saying that there is going to be, but if there were, then, of course, Congress appetite may change and that you may see them act. But I, I think um, just assuming sort of the steady state, again, the threshold for Congress to really act here seems to be very high. And today's hearing, I think, just was a, a you know, sort of underscored that. So what then should if I'm, you know, the Fed and, you know, if all if all the arrows are now pointing back towards my banking supervision and saying, hey, this was the problem. Um, what do I do now, especially because we know there's going to be further. So so as Calabria said, he thought that, you know, depositors are rational and pulling their funds out because SVB was insolvent. Well, let's say there's other banks that are going to be running into trouble. Who who's are, are we acting now? Is the Fed acting now to try to get ahead of that? What are they doing if they worry about, are they raising capital, those institutions? I'm just curious now what direction this points them, because it's still playing out, you know, right in front of our eyes. Yeah, of course. And again, I do think we think the real action will be at the Fed uh, to the at and at the FDIC to to a lesser extent. But again, the Fed um, and again, Vice Chairman Barr very much spoke to this as well. They already have the discretion to impose more stringent capital and liquidity requirements on those banks with assets bigger, you know, with, with more than $100 billion of assets. So we very much expect them to move forward on that. It will be lengthy, though, Kelly, to your point, that this is not necessarily something happening in real time. There is a rulemaking process. There are sort of procedures and, and processes in place that the Fed will have to adhere to. But again, I think Vice Chair Barr was very clear that he does expect to move forward. And, and FDIC Chair Gruenberg sort of reiterated that, that they do believe that more regulation is important. Now, We'll, we'll have to wait to see with this postmortem that the Fed is putting together. Was this a gap in regulation? If the liquidity coverage ratio, for instance, had been applied to this bank, would this have not happened? We'll have to sort of wait for their report. Um, but I do think the general sense is more regulation is coming. And I'll just the last thing I'll say, Kelly, is that that could have a read through from an economic growth perspective oh, too, sure. because if these regional banks, of course, are pulling back on their 
their lending activity, um, that could really, you know, have the reverberations for the real economy as well. And I'm sure something the Fed is very much going to be yeah. um, taking into consideration. It, it goes back to the downgrade of CAT and United Rentals yesterday, specifically citing the regional uh, lending weakness that they expect in their core markets. Libby, great stuff. Thank you. We appreciate it today. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. Libby Cantrell of PIMCO. Still ahead, home prices are finally starting to fall in some cities, but with higher rates, tighter lending standards, will that be enough to spark buying this spring season? We'll dig into that next. And let's get another check on markets. As mentioned, the Dow has given up a 100-point gain to fall by almost that amount. The Nasdaq is now down 1%. The S&P 3956, a half-point drop. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. New data showing home prices cooled in January, even declining outright in some West Coast cities. Let's get Diana Olick here to break it all down. Hi, Diana. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, that's right. Prices were only up 3.8% national in January from January of last year. That, according to the S&P Case-Shiller Index, if you remember last summer, they were still up in double digits. Now, this is down from a 5.6% increase in December. On a monthly basis, prices have been coming down now for seven straight months. The monthly drop in January, though, was actually smaller than previous months, and that was likely due to a brief drop in mortgage rates and a resulting jump in home sales. You see here the average rate on the 30-year fix was around 7% in the fall, then started coming back down most sharply in January. These numbers would only capture a little bit of that and other more recent price indices have shown prices actually bump up in some markets in January because of those lower rates. But rates, of course, now are heading higher again. Now, the picture is a little more interesting locally, with some major markets finally going negative compared with a year ago. San Francisco, Seattle and San Diego and prices were flat in Phoenix. Other cities, though, still super hot. Miami, Tampa, and Atlanta. The Sun Belt is still seeing transplants even three years after the start of the pandemic. Kelly? More to come. I think this needs to be like a whole series, Diana, because I have <laughs> probably about 18 questions. Uh, for now, thank you, our Diana Olick in Washington. Ahead, we'll dig into the dollar. Well off its two-decade high hit back in September. And with Russia adding some fuel to China's bid to give the yuan a bigger role on the global stage, some are warning of a looming crisis. But one expert says making the renminbi a global standard would weaken China's economy. He joins me to explain next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Russia making moves to wean itself off of the dollar as its war in Ukraine pushes into a second year. It's turning to the Chinese yuan. And with the dollar weakening this year, some experts are warning of a potential crisis if the greenback loses its global reserve status. But my next guest says the opposite is true. It would benefit America if that were to happen. Joining me now is Michael Pettis, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment and a finance professor at Peking University. Michael, thanks for joining us. I know it's the middle of the night for you especially. Uh, we really appreciate it. And let's start with this idea that it's not actually in China's interest to have a reserve currency. Why? Well, you know, when you, uh, in order to have a reserve currency, you have to have an environment in which foreigners want to deposit their excess savings. And to do that, you have to give up control of your capital accounts, something that China is determined not to do. You have to give up control of your trade account. And China has to run surpluses in order to uh, balance the, the, the weakness in domestic demand. It has very weak domestic demand. So it has to really go through a major transformation of its economy and run from a persistent surplus economy to a persistent deficit economy if it wants the renminbi to be a, a major global currency. Right. And so far, uh, nobody really wants that. 
and I, I wanted you to make that point in particular because you're there in Beijing and you know that they know this. And so in a way that so then a lot of this sure. is posturing by the Chinese, by the Russians, I, I suppose. Um, what about the Americans? You know, can you just connect the dots for us to understand, because it's counterintuitive that the dollar being a global reserve currency, you think hurts us more than it helps? Has that always been true sure. or is this just true lately? No, it's uh, it's been true for something like uh, 40 years, 50 years, so for, for quite a while. And in China, it's not that everybody is opposed to making the renminbi uh, the dominant currency. Like in the U.S., certain groups, the, the banks, uh, the foreign affairs establishment, the military establishment, see uh, 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 currency dominance as a very powerful weapon. And it is a very powerful weapon, but it comes at a cost. And in the case of the U.S., the U.S. has to run persistent deficits year after year after year in order to satisfy the weak demand in the rest of the world. So what I would argue is that rather than think about the dollar as being good or bad for the U.S., we have to understand it really that, <clears throat> that it's good for some sectors. Hmm. Again, uh, owners of movable capital, Wall Street, uh, the military establishment, foreign affairs establishment, very powerful sectors. But it's bad for American workers, farmers, producers, middle class savers, um, so if because I were, it forced. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and I want to hear your explanation. But I, I guess in in telling us that, if I were President Biden, I said, "Well, I want to do what's good for American workers," and, and all those groups you just named. I I can't exactly imagine I'm going to get up there and say, eh, "Hey, Russia and China, you know, forget about the dollar. Just forget about it as a." As a you know, but that's kind of the direction that, that it would need to go. Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, one of the things the U.S. could do is to is to impose costs on the ability of foreigners to acquire assets. You know, there's this myth that we import foreign savings because we need to fund our deficit, and it's exactly the opposite. People uh, 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 direct their foreign savings into the U.S. for lots of reasons. Their their excess savings, very high quality governance, very deep and liquid markets. Um, and there's no discrimination or very little discrimination between Americans and non-American owners of American assets. So if you have money that you want to put into safe assets, if you're very wealthy and you want to take money out of your country, if you want to uh, invest in a diversified portfolio of good companies, you tend to put your money in the U.S. or other similar markets, England, Australia, Canada. And so it's no uh, coincidence that these countries all have massive capital inflows, yeah. and it's no coincidence that they run large deficits. They have to run large deficits as a result of those inflows. So final question, I love how we're trying to fit all of this into like 30 seconds, but should we even be trying to fix our deficits then? I mean, you make it sound like that would be shooting ourselves in the foot or, or, or that they're not they're not our fault or something. It's, it's just an odd thing. You know, we talk about deficits, deficits, we've got to fix them, we've got to fix them, and then I, I hear what you're saying, and you're, and you're saying, no, they're, they're they're not even irrational, I guess. They're not our fault. Maybe we just leave them the way they are. Well, no, I don't think we should leave them the way they are because these deficits force the U.S. constantly to choose between higher unemployment or higher debt. And, mm. and I don't think we want either of those. The problem is that most economists seem to think, and, and certainly President Trump did, that the way to attack the deficits is with tariffs. But if what's really driving the deficits are these capital inflows, 
then the real way to attack the uh, the deficits is to address the capital inflows, not to uh, not to impose tariffs. Thank you, uh, Professor, for joining us. <laughs> Try to explain it a little bit better. Uh, it's fascinating and, and one of the most significant issues right now. So we appreciate your time. My pleasure. Michael Pettis with the Carnegie Endowment. That's it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.